Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello. Welcome to the History Hit World Wars podcast, a podcast dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. My name's James Rogers, and in this episode, we explore the Battle of Bellew Wood. In June 1918, during the First World War, the Germans were making an offensive towards Paris. Standing between them and the capital were the US Marines, centred on infantry tactics, shooting from the hip, and with an aggressive, offensive reputation, the Germans knew what lay ahead. It was here, though, that around 50 miles from Paris, the Battle of Bellew Wood took place. As the fantastic Michael Nyberg from the US Army War College explains, this was a ferocious fight, which spawned the famous US Marine mottos of retreat, hell we just got here, and come on you sons of bitches, do you want to live forever? This was the beginning of a warrior elite. I think the most important historical context is Germany's attempt to win the First World War in the spring and early summer of 1918 before the American army could make itself felt. So what, what the, the Russian army having collapsed in the east, Germany was trying to move as many infantry divisions to the west as it possibly could. And the real context of Bella Wood is the third of these five German offensives that, ev- that eventually take place in 1918 when the Germans are trying to drive We don't think, historians today don't think they were trying to go towards Paris, but it was an easy thing to look in a map and believe that they were moving towards Paris. Uh, So the the panic that's going on inside Allied lines, you can imagine, and the race really is whether the Germans can move those units from east to west faster than the Americans can get them from the United States to Western Europe. And Bella Wood and this campaign is going to become a major part of all of that. Did the Germans know there would be American units blocking the road to Paris? They knew. Uh, They knew the Americans were in the line. Uh, They knew in part because of the way the Americans fought, which was a much more aggressive. You can use the adjective courageous or you can use the adjective reckless, I guess, depending on one's point of view. But Americans, at least in this early phase of their participation in the First World War, didn't fight the way that the French did. The French were fighting a much more methodical, much more industrial war with heavy uses of artillery, heavy uses of gas. American battle tactics at this early stage were much more centered around individual riflemen and infantry tactics. So it was pretty easy for the Germans to figure out who was opposite them. How prepared were these U.S. troops that were flooding into France? 
they were not battle prepared at all. Um, so for most American troops, most of them had very little military experience at all. Uh, they had volunteered or had been drafted uh, since April 1917 with the American Declaration of War. There was a very small cadre of professional regulars who were there to kind of teach uh, troops new new tactics and new ways of thinking about things. But John Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force, very much wanted American troops to do fire and maneuver tactics, meaning that he wanted infantrymen moving. He didn't want them in trenches. He wanted them moving with their rifles. He wanted them shooting from the hip. He wanted them constantly attacking. And these were, of course, tactics that had failed on the Western Front from 1914 to 1917. And the French, British, Germans had moved to a much more scientific, much more industrial way that the Americans will also pick up. They'll do it at Belleau Wood. They'll do it at San Miguel and Musargon battles that follow. But in the early stages, they're very much following a, a very reckless, very courageous, very offensive-minded uh, way of fighting war. So exactly 100 years ago this week, the Battle of Belleau Wood was raging. Why does this event loom so large in um, the American memory of the First World War? I think there's really three things going on. It's, it, it, even though we historians know today that the Germans did not actually have Paris set as a goal, as I said earlier, it's easy to look at a map and see that the Germans are progressively getting closer and closer. And the point that they come the closest to Paris is Chateau Thierry and just about five miles away, Belleau Wood. So it's easy to kind of look at that and say that we were on the road that blocked their advance to Paris. The second is, I think, this notion of American courage and American bravery, which is undoubtedly there at Bella Wood. Americans are, are fighting a tenacious battle inside a forest, which is a very, very difficult thing to do. And then the third, and I think maybe the most important, is the media coverage that it got um, during both during the battle and after the battle by a couple of very famous war correspondents who were there and the Marine Corps' decision not to censor battle reports that were coming out of the Western Front in the same way that the Army did. So there's really a kind of perfect storm of, of history, and I don't quite want to say mythology, but at least a story that the Marine Corps wanted to tell. If we're going to talk about mythology, Michael, then we've we got to talk about the motto, right? Retreat. Hell, we've just arrived. <laughs> you know, we've, we have no way of knowing for sure, but with the Marines that I've worked with and the Marines that I've known, um, I don't want to doubt it. Um, that's one of those stories I want to believe is true, uh, along with a, a Marine Corps sergeant who's supposed to have screamed, you sons of bitches want to live forever. Um, and these are, you know, expressions that capture that fighting ethos of the United States Marine Corps, that desire to identify themselves as different from the army uh, to which they were subordinated at this battle. I'm going to go ahead and say that they, he, he did say it, even though, you know, going back into time, it's very difficult to know. But it, 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 it is one of those things that completely encapsulates the spirit, the zeitgeist of a moment. Just... just uh... We should. We should. We're getting a bit too carried away, Michael. We probably we're in slight danger of leaving the audience behind. Can you can you tell everyone the story? Sure. My apologies. Uh, the Americans are supposed to have arrived onto the battlefield uh, just as uh, a, a French unit is kind of beginning to withdraw off of the battlefield, um, and an American captain named Lloyd Williams of the the Fifth Marines is a Fifth Marine Regiment is supposed to have screamed retreat. Hell, we just got here. Uh, and, it, and it encapsulates this kind of fighting spirit of the Americans in 1918 that to the American eyes is utterly lacking in the French troops that are on their right and on their left. Um, it is important, I think, to just state for the historical record that those same French soldiers 
are not doing this kind of attacking because they've seen the human cost and indeed the human cost that the Marines are going to suffer uh, at this battle. So they're going much more slowly. They're taking a very different approach to tactics than the Marines did. But the quote is one of those absolute classics. And we should tell everyone, that hero, Lloyd Williams, he didn't survive the battle. He actually died, Mm -hmm. apparently, heroically, later on in the month. Absolutely. Absolutely. Why did the Americans deploy such large numbers of men to this battle? So the, the, the real reason why the Americans are there is quite a specific technical reason. So if you look at a map of the German offensives of 1918, uh, this is the third of what will eventually become five. What the Germans are hoping to do is force the French and British to move their reserves to meet these contingencies, leaving a weakness somewhere on the Western Front. General Ludendorff, the German general who put these together, famously said, we'll punch a hole and then we'll see. What Ferdinand Foch, the commander of the Allied armies, is trying to do is defeat this attack that's in the direction of Paris without weakening the reserves that the French and British have up in Flanders. So really the reason the Americans are put into this fight is because if the American 2nd and 3rd divisions go towards Belleau Wood and Chateau Thierry, that's enough men to safeguard Paris and safeguard the communications there without having to weaken Flanders. So the, 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 the kind of fun, popular history Marine Corps way of telling the story is that the Americans go into this fight because they're the best and they're ready. And the, the, there's a small element of that. But the real reason is what Foch really does not want to do is take divisions away from Flanders. Is this the largest battle fought thus far by the Americans in the war? It is. It's the first multi-divisional, which is to say an American division is roughly twenty-five to 26,000 men, somewhere in that ballpark, about twice the size of a European division. It's the first multi-division battle that the Americans fight. Um, San Miguel, Musargan, these were both going to become bigger battles than Bellow Wood. But at the time, it is the first large multi-division battle the Americans fight. It, it always feels to me, am I, being, am I being overly simplistic, but this feels to me at like the start of the century of American military hegemony. I think it is. And I think it's it's the beginning of the United States figuring out – to me, the real debate about this time period is once America wins the war, what then do we do? And that's a question that there, the Americans don't have a consensus answer on. But there is a sense beginning to develop that, that you absolutely are embarking on something extraordinary. And of course, this is the first time American combat troops fight in Europe. When President Wilson comes to Paris in January of 1919, it's the first time an American president has left the United States during his term of office. Something is clearly beginning to shift here. Uh, what it exactly is going to mean, what the Americans are going to do, is an open question. And we can't forget either what's happening on the other side of Europe with the Bolshevik revolution that's going on inside Russia. So with hindsight, it's easy to see 1917, 1918 as a real turning point in the history of Europe. Were lessons learned from Bellow Wood? Did the Americans change their tactics for their next engagements? Absolutely, they do. So the Bellow Wood is largely an infantryman's fight. It's largely a small unit fight uh, in a forest, which means that liaison between units is very difficult to accomplish. It's hard to do what is called a combined arms or set piece battle, where all of the various weapons are being used in concert. Those things are all really, really difficult to do at Bellow Wood. Uh, the Americans do begin to learn as they're watching the French do this that it doesn't really matter whether you take a piece of territory in one day, two days, three days, four days. What really matters is that you take that piece of ground at an acceptable cost to yourself while inflicting a heavy cost on the enemy. And that's really the essence of what these set piece battles are designed to do. So 
One of the unusual consequences of that is that from about July of 1918 to the end of the war, we don't really have large, um, decisive, huge battles like Verdun and the Somme because the Allies have decided they're just not worth fighting anymore. So there isn't a kind of identifiable battle. There are individual kind of engagements that go on, but nothing on the order of that, in part, as I said, because they don't want to fight them anymore. And that's a lesson that the Americans eventually come to learn as well. So did, did the, were the Americans strong in infantry, but, but lacking in terms of their tanks, their, their guns, their aircraft, their supporting arms? Absolutely. There's an agreement made in the spring of 1918 when the Germans are beginning these offensives, when it, when it really does look like there could be a potential threat to the Allies losing the war, an agreement called the Abbeville Agreement, where the Americans agree to ship, for the most part, infantry. Uh, the British agree to provide the ships to get the Americans over, and French industry does a really remarkable and, and untold story of supplying not only its own army, but supplying the Americans as well. So when you look at photographs of American soldiers in the First World War, they are very often wearing French helmets, they're using French telephones, they're firing French machine guns, they're using French artillery pieces. Uh, airplanes are an interesting kind of blend because they are American airplane engines, because an airplane engine in this time period is essentially an automobile engine. The Americans can do that very well, but they're they're being flown on French airframes. So it's a really interesting and, and not well-told part of this story uh, that will change as the Americans kind of begin to ramp up. Uh, but at the time of Bella Wood and even after, the Americans are shipping almost exclusively infantry, and they're doing it at the rate of tens of thousands of men a week, which makes it very difficult now for the Germans to win the war. It must have been really difficult to fight an all-arms coordinated battle. I mean, it's difficult the best of times, but that kind of inter-allied, inter-language cooperation must have made it nearly impossible. Makes it extraordinarily difficult, which is why myself as an historian, uh, I have a little bit of empathy when I'm reading some of the reports from 1918 uh, of soldiers describing the utter confusion and you know, calling their officers idiots and how stupid these people are and how could they do this to us. And then exactly as you said, trying to think about how one would organize an army uh, at Bella Wood, remember, there are French units on the right and left. In the middle of July at the Battle of the Marne, the Allies are coordinating an army that is part British, part French, part American, part Italian, uh, with Senegalese and colonial troops in the French army, Indo-Chinese laborers. It is an unbelievably difficult thing to orchestrate. So I have a little bit of sympathy for the staff officers who were doing their very best to put all of this together. What lessons think the American military took away from the First World War? I think part of the issue for the United States, and I was just actually talking about this last night with a group of officers, is the beginning of an understanding that separating out the political dimension to be done by politicians and the military dimension to be done by soldiers is too neat a division, that the politicians have to be better informed about military matters and the military has to be better informed about political matters so that by the time you get to the Second World War, there are senior officers like George Marshall and Dwight Eisenhower who are very much thinking about what we call here the strategic level, which is where politics and the military intersect. Admiral Leahy begins in World War II, the, the job really of, of what now be, has become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, somebody whose job is to coordinate that flow of information up and down. And I think that's one part of this that is absolutely critical. I also think industrial resourcing, this is another not very well told story, 
But in the lead up to the First World War, the United States actually did a pretty poor job of beginning to prepare its industrial base in the event that the United States should get involved in the war. Uh, there are difficulties in the 1930s with this as well, but the, 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 the ideas, the planning, all of that is in place so that when the Second World War begins, the United States can begin this process much more quickly. Uh, those two, I think, and the inter-allied piece that the Americans eventually begin to figure out in the Second World War as well. The Americans are an uncomfortable junior partner in the First World War. Uh, President Wilson doesn't even like using the term alliance. He describes the United States as an associated power to the European alliance, and that presents all sorts of difficulties as well. So now that we're 100 years on from the first massive American battle of the First World War, what does Bellowood mean, do you think, in the broad sweep of U.S. military history? Well, the United States Marine Corps would tell you this is the beginning of, of what the Marine Corps will become. This is, this is the battle that defines the Marines as something independent from the U.S. Army, as an elite fighting force, the kind of people who would scream, retreat, hell, we just got here, that the kind of people that would have sergeants who would say, do you sons of bitches want to live forever? That kind of fighting spirit that the Marines are now so well known for in the United States. Um, Plus, one would have to add their ability to work with the media extremely well, which they do in both world wars. Um, it's the development of this this conception in the United States um, of, of a kind of warrior elite that the United States Marine Corps represents. It's also the beginning, as I said, of this American involvement in European affairs on the battlefield. It's, it's, a, it's the beginning also of a kind of scientific approach to warfare. That is, Bella Wood... From the beginning of the battle to the end of the battle, the Americans have moved from this infantry-centric to moving towards a much more technological and scientific-centric, which is the way the American military thinks of, of warfare today, what American doctrine is about today. I've got to say, buddy, I've, I've, st I've got a smile on my face just thinking about you walking into a U.S. Marine Corps <laughs> mess and telling them that uh, the, their, their absolute, their founding motto is actually a, a piece of mythology. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I, I, you have to be very, very careful, of course. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's certainly a part of, of what the Marine Corps is about. It's a part of that corporate identity of the Marines. Um, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt also had that wonderful thing about something about the Marines are the most ill-mannered, ill-behaved people on earth. Thank God they're on our side. And that's certainly how I feel about them. Love them. Thanks, man. Look, I'm, I'm coming over to uh, the World War I Museum there in Kansas in the fall. It'd be great to have a beer if we can meet up. Anytime. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.